Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah Streming, the Cog Dog Coach, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I cover behavior concepts, discuss training ideas, interview experts, and explore my cases, all regarding the dogs we live and play with. Let's go. Friends, today I want to talk about the difference between excellence and perfection. Because I strive for excellence in my dog training. I strive for excellence in a lot of the things that I do. But I can get a little bit caught up in striving for excellence when I mistake excellence for perfection. Or or when I think of excellence as being the same as perfection. And it's not. So... Let's start with a couple of definitions. Excellence is defined as being outstanding or extremely good. And I love that. I almost feel like I'm going to write be extremely good on (laughs) post-it or um, just the word outstanding and just put that somewhere. But so excellence is being outstanding or extremely good. And perfection is defined as um, being as free as possible from flaws or defects. So perfection is being free of flaws or defects. And excellence is being outstanding or extremely good. So if my goal is to put up an outstanding performance um, with one of my dogs or to train my dogs to an outstanding or extremely good level, then I'm going to say that if things go wrong in the process, that is okay as long as on the whole things are looking outstanding or extremely good. And I'm even going to argue that these things are mutually exclusive. You, that you cannot achieve excellence while worrying about being perfect. Because if we are worrying about perfection, which I'm going to argue doesn't exist, I'm going to say it's a seductive fantasy. And I'm going to also say that excellence is more the raw kind of vulnerable reality that we can reach if we try as hard as we can, that they can't exist at the same time or they can't be the the goal at the same time. Because if your goal is to be free of flaws, then you will not try things you could fail at. If your goal is to be flawless then you won't put yourself on the line, try things, and push your training. And that's what you have to do to achieve excellence. So I'm reminded of um, the Man in the Arena speech, which I will link for you all. But essentially, the gist of the speech is that the guarantee when you're in the arena, fighting the fight, trying, being out there, The guarantee is that you will fall down. The promise is that you will fail sometimes. But the other, you know, the flip side is victory. The flip side is winning the fight. The flip side is achieving that excellent outcome that you were after. And to me, the winner and the loser in the arena were both in the arena and therefore both achieved excellence. So if I'm in there trying the thing, doing the thing, showing up, working hard, then I'm achieving excellence. But if I'm worried about perfection, 
then I'm probably going to try less. I'm certainly not going to be in the arena. I'm certainly not going to risk falling down. And so I'll never get to excellence if my if perfection is the goal. So let's look at this from some really specific places in dog training. I train for agility. I train for competitive obedience. And then I train my dogs a whole bunch of other things. I train them life skills. I work really, really hard on their recalls and other trail skills. I work on their leash skills, body handling, grooming. I mean, I'm basically... Y'all know this. I'm a training junkie. I love dog training, but I also just get so much um, enrichment and fulfillment out of the training that I engage with with my dogs. But when it comes to sports in particular, I'm after excellence and I always have been. And that can be a little bit dangerous because there's always this little voice in your head that wants to say that excellence is flawless and that's not true. Perfection is flawless. And perfection doesn't exist. So if I look at a run and there were flaws in the run, it can be really easy for me to feel like I failed and to feel like that run, that agility run, did not meet my goal of excellence because of those flaws. Or I can look at every aspect of the run that did achieve excellence. And I work very hard to be sure that that's most aspects of the run. I'm going to be happier and more satisfied with my trial day. If I can look at what I've called for a long time with myself and my students, if I can look at those points of excellence on the course and ask, did I achieve those points of excellence today? Then I feel happier about my outcomes and then I'm more likely to show up next time. So I will do this. I'll look at a course, I'll analyze the course And I will, rather than thinking about running clean, rather than thinking about the cue, I want to think about what are my points of excellence on the course. And what that means is where are the sections on the course that I know are going to require a lot from me, but that I also know we can do. So if I know my dog and I can do this tough sequence in the middle of the course, But I also know not a given and it's not a guarantee and I need to show up and really give my best effort out there and and be, you know, be vulnerable, right? Like it's vulnerable to trust a dog's obstacle commitment enough to achieve handling excellence. I'm going to look at that as my point of excellence. And when I finish the run, the only thing I'm going to worry about is my points of excellence, Let's say my dog's um, dog walk contact behavior is in flux. You know, let's just say that hypothetically. Of course, I would never have a dog walk contact um, behavior being in flux. I'm not going to consider the dog walk contact as my point of excellence on course. I have no control over it in the moment. I'm just going to take the dog walk contact as data for whether or not my training plan on the dog walk is working or not. Right? So... I'm going to pay attention to those pieces. I'll probably pay attention to all of my obstacle performances like that as just data. Because when you're in the ring, you have no control over those things. It's whether it's you trained it or you didn't. What I have control over is my handling. And so I look at pieces on the course as my points of handling excellence. And that's what I'm going to worry about when I leave the run. Because otherwise, I'm only worried about the cue or I'm worried about perfection. And the cue is outside of your control and perfection doesn't exist. So to have a nice time in that dog sport, 
thinking about excellence instead thinking about, you know, I really trusted that send and go so that I could get that front cross in in a timely manner so that my dog knew exactly where he was supposed to go for the next three obstacles. That's excellence to me. And I'm going to always think about that. I think about it when I'm on the training field as well. So on the training field, I'm taking data always, but I'm also thinking, you know, is this performance that I am training excellence. Is it outstanding? Is it extremely good? I've always trained my obedience behaviors to be high scoring, nice behaviors. I don't mess around, you know, allowing for sloppy fronts and finishes and things like that. I'm training to excellence because when I get in the ring, those things, again, I have no control over. So I train to excellence. And then when I get in the ring, the excellence I'm focusing on is myself. If I worry about perfection for either my training or my trialing, I am setting us up to just not try because perfection by its nature is afraid to fall, is afraid to screw up, which you will do if you're pushing for excellence. Okay, so if I'm pushing for excellence in, say, weave pole entries, then I am systematically introducing harder and harder entrances to my dog which means that I will find the line between what the dog knows and what the dog doesn't know, which means that there will be a failure. But if I'm constantly staying in the easy zone and constantly sending for easy weave pull entries, I'm not necessarily achieving excellence. I am achieving perfection. The dog is doing it right every time. But I'm not achieving excellence, which I will get to if I try things that are a little bit harder. Now, I am not saying to introduce a lot of failure in your training. Y'all know this. If you've been listening to me for any length of time, you know that I don't want the dog to fail much at all. I don't really want you to fail much either. I just want you to accept that failure and falling down are part of achieving excellence. And if perfection is your goal, you won't do much. You will be paralyzed. I did another whole podcast on that. If I enter the training space going, the dog cannot screw up. The dog cannot miss an entry. The dog cannot knock a bar. The dog cannot look away once in healing. Then I'm not going to do much. I'm going to do the little, you know, tiny chunk of things I can do within that realm. And I'm not going to get very far. And what it usually looks like for people is that the dog never trials. The dog never gets to trial ready. Because I'm not saying trial the dog before they're ready. That's not excellence right? I'm saying get them to the point where you know that you can achieve excellence on that course and then go fill out that entry form and get out there rather than, you know, being one of these people who is maybe really interested in dog sports and curious about it, but eh, just, you know, my training sessions never look as good as so-and-so's training sessions. So I'd rather just go on a walk right now. None of this may be for you. You may be going, I don't do sports, Sarah. You know, what? where does this come in for me? It, it comes in with behavior modification too. So I'm after excellence as well when it comes to any kind of behavior change that I might be embarking on with my own dog or with a client dog. And you and the client need to get on the same page about that and agree upon what outstanding is, what excellence looks like agree upon which failures will be okay. Because if your failure leads to an injury or worse in your plan, then I'm going to say that that's too risky, right? We don't need to be doing things that we know will cause disaster to be achieving excellence. We just need to be pushing that threshold. 
okay? And what that means is the dog may have a reactive outburst. And you go, all right, well, pushed him over threshold, didn't we? Well, okay, we did that in an effort to achieve excellence. Let's reevaluate. Let's take that as data, reevaluate our plan, figure out how we're going to be outstanding next time. And just keep plugging away and, and just keep putting in the miles. Just keep, you know, logging the time, doing the work. It's really important. So as you go forward uh, with your clients, with your own dogs this next week, I want you to think, am I worried about being perfect or am I doing everything in my power to be excellent? And then figure out what both of those things look like for you. And if they look the same to you, I think it needs a closer look. Okay, and some Patreon questions. The first one comes from Nikki, and it's a pretty long question, so I'm going to start it and I'll kind of fill you in as we go. So Nikki writes, as new puppies come into our homes, they have a habit of highlighting the gaps in the training of our older dogs. That is so true. Nikki then informs us that uh, she has two Labradors, or two Retrievers, and a young Border Collie. The Retrievers will sometimes kind of sound off or alert at something by barking, but they're kind of harmless. And so she never did anything about it. And, you know, never even called them off of anything because, as she writes, honestly, it was a bark, run a few steps, turn around, and check with mom before trotting off. The problem is they start this behavior and amp the puppy up, and he's way faster at flat-out running in that direction while they're back to sniffing like he's a nut. This is really, really common, Nikki, when people have two drastically different breeds. So if you have two retrievers and they kind of bark at something, it's easy for the retrievers to then, to then kind of go back to their lives. But the Border Collie says, wait, if we're barking, that is cause for extreme alarm. And so I'm going to need to also bark and therefore freak out. So Nikki continues um, to say, obviously, I do everything I can to avoid this issue by walking places that I'm not worried about what he could chase but I'm curious how I could work the older dog's alarm barking so we don't have the issue and how I could work on him recalling even while they're alarm barking so what I would do is make the Labrador's barking a cue for the Border Collie to come to you for a high value reinforcer and I would even you know start in an easier environment like in your home make the labs alarm bark like have somebody knock on a table or something like that, and then immediately redirect the Border Collie to that high value reinforcer. And when he starts to hear them bark, turn to you, then you can start to expect it out in the world. And until then, I would try not to have them together out in the world unless he was on a long line so that you could redirect him to that reinforcer when they did it. It will be easier for you to train him than to train them because they have a long established history of doing this and he does not. He's young, he's new. And it would be, you know, that would be my choice would be to train the young dog to respond differently to the alarm barking rather than try to get rid of the alarm barking in general. So give that a shot and let us all know how it goes. Next one comes from Anya who writes, hi, Sarah, I have a question about the fun topic of wildlife chasing. What is the best way to reconcile the need to manage this behavior by using a long line when the dogs need to move their body a lot? I have a 13-month-old Border Collie. We've been working on the recall protocol since he was tiny, and we made a lot of progress, but he will still chase deer. We live in a rural area, and even our parks are surrounded by forests, so there's deer risk. 
I started using a long line for management as soon as I saw that he wanted to chase things. And then she also adds that he was diagnosed with EPI at around eight months. And prior to starting treatment, he never really ran on walks at all. Okay, so he was actually a sick puppy who kind of woke up when he got some treatment around eight months. Now he has more energy and wants to run all the time, of course. And I really see a difference in his behavior at home more difficulty settling, more pestering of the other dogs compared to when he gets more freedom to run. So here's what's interesting. You do need to limit the chasing of the deer. That's very, very true. One thing I would do is walk during low deer traffic times. They're usually a morning and evening type of creature. You can see them in the middle of the day, obviously, but they're going to be in shady areas, wooded areas, um, and you can stick to other other parts of your, like, if you're in the park, don't go into the adjacent woods, that sort of thing. It is a tough balance, but it's a balance you need to find. I would also be looking at fenced areas where it is safe to just kind of let him go so that if you do see a deer, no, it's, it is bad if he chases it, but it's not going to be astronomically bad if he chases it because there's a fence to stop him. So things like sniff spots or um, friend's property, things like that. And then try to enhance those long line walks by doing, you know, just added enrichment to the walks. I do that by, you know, scattering food in bushes and shrubbery. I do it by maybe playing a hide and seek game with a high value reinforcer, like just kind of up the ante on the long line walks. But the truth is, as you're kind of mentioning, this dog probably just has to move his body a ton because he is a young border collie. And young border collies, a lot of the time, really do have just plain high exercise needs. So the other thing that I would be really thinking about is other ways for him to move his body. So maybe incorporating some fitness training into his life. And we've got another one from Katie who writes... I have a question about managing behaviors when you cannot temporarily provide what the dog needs for a balanced life. And this really plays right off of the question we just answered, but it's a different scenario. So Katie goes on to say, I have a wonderful five-year-old Australian Shepherd that normally I would consider an easy dog to have for my lifestyle. She self-settles and self-entertains when I'm busy. She's great with training, wonderful crate training, settling skills, and so on. While we're currently three months in on crate rest with minimal walks due to a surgery for elbow dysplasia in both elbows. I've tried my best trying to balance sedatives, anti-anxiety medication, enrichment items, and training to keep her entertained, but we've gotten some mild frustration behaviors that I don't like. It's mostly the vocalizing, though I've seen a lot of behaviors slip backwards. These are like leash skills, greeting skills, ability to focus, and so on. I've also noticed with trying to train easy, no leg movement type behaviors like nod your head yes that she gets way too over aroused. Um, et cetera, et cetera. So Katie is, is basically saying, I can't give this dog what she actually needs and I'm seeing the behavioral detriments, right? So this is where I come to. I always say that, you know, so many of our quote unquote behavior problems are actually welfare deficits. And that's what's going on here is that this dog is on um, three months crate rest, which just a second, I'm coming back to that. Um, three months crate rest now, and you're seeing some major detrimental effects because, yeah, that's not a life for a dog like this. And then the final question is kind of, do you work on maintaining your expectations on things like leash skills and greeting skills, or would you let things slide because you know the dog's needs are not being met? So let me answer all those questions. But the first thing I'm going to say is that I want you to potentially seek another opinion on the rehab plan because three months of crate rest 
and I'm obviously not a veterinarian, but I'm pretty familiar with a lot of the rehab journeys following these types of surgeries because my partner's a sports medicine vet. So it's certainly not my place to say, but it is my, I can say you should get another opinion because that sounds excessive to me. Um, I have watched the rehab of elbow dysplasia repair before, and that seems excessive to me. And I would be seeking another opinion on that front. The other thing is that I would be upping or changing the pharmaceutical management because when our lives cannot look the way they need to look for us to maintain mental health, pharmaceutical intervention is necessary. So let me give you an example. I, you know, if I've gone through a major traumatic life event and that affects my day-to-day ability to function as I grieve and process that event. It is a kindness to give me a medication that helps me function on a day-to-day basis while I grieve and process that event. Dogs are the same. It doesn't mean it has to be forever. You're talking sedatives and you didn't give me any specific meds, which is fine because I can't talk specifics anyway. But I would be thinking about some sort of daily medication that you could add, you know, other types of meds to. Essentially, what I'm saying is you need a second opinion from a sports medicine specialist for the rehab plan. And you also need another opinion from somebody who is well versed in behavior meds, because I would be changing both of those things if possible, because those they're not working for you. And you're seeing some detrimental behavior effects And that needs to be brought to both professionals' attention as well as your current overseeing vet's attention. What you're going through doesn't need to be happening and needs to be brought to the attention um, of the medical team. Now, do I maintain my expectations? That depends on whether or not I think the dog is actually capable of what I'm asking because if they're not, then no. I worry about training it later. It sounds like you are doing a lot of things, but you also asked about if I should, if I would be trying to train calmness, I would not. I'd be increasing all of the enrichment types of behaviors I can do. Tracking is my favorite type of training for dogs that are in surgery recovery because it doesn't involve a lot of frenetic or fast movement. It tends to follow your kind of leash walk rules that you might have following a surgery like this, but it also engages the body and the mind in a way that a leash walk cannot and in a way that just a nose work session cannot. So I would get into tracking if possible, and I would do some really high level cognitive types of training. So high level concept training like match to sample, scent discrimination, uh, visual discrimination, tasks like that. And it, but again, I do think this is a problem at the at the top with the medical team because this this rest is excessive and it's going on for for too long. Um, and the medication that's on board to support her through the rest is also not working for you. And I would worry about those things first because anything else that you do is just going to be you kind of you know <laughs> trying to pull pull people out of the river. So it's that kind of old saying that. You can pull drowning people out of the river only for so long before you need to go up to the top of the river and find out who's throwing them in, right? (laughs) So um, if you go up to the top of the river and stop the real problem, you're not going to need to worry about pulling people out of the river. And that's, that's what I want you to really be focusing on. So Katie, do look into that and uh, keep us posted. I'm curious as to whether or not anything changes for you. 
And the last one for this week comes from Rendina, who asks, what is the best way to end an interrupted training session? For example, in the middle of a training session, a car pulls up in front of the neighbor's house. Scenario one, dog completely leaves the training session to investigate bark, etc. So training session is just over. Scenario two, dog is distracted by the car enough that you can tell they're no longer fully engaged in the training session, although they haven't actually left and are still kind of focused on the training, but not enough that I want to continue the session. So... Rendina, I'm glad that you're thinking about not running um, or continuing to work a dog that is not all in. So I think you know that my rule is that the dog gives 100% because I'm giving 100%. So my rule is that I step in with 100% and I do not train a dog that's not giving their version of 100%. That looks different based on what dog I'm training. But a full-on session interruption like that, for me, if the dog actually ran away during a session to investigate something, I would absolutely end session. That would be over for me. And here's, here's why. Not because it would fix anything or change anything next time, because it would straight up piss me off is why. <laughs> so that's just the reality of who Sarah is. That would piss me off. I would go collect my dog, put them away, and move on to the next thing that I wanted to do today. If I really wanted to salvage it, I would start over from square one get engagement, get consent, practice some reinforcer skills, then go into training. And that's true also for when you know the dog is distracted, but they're continuing to work. I'm going to say that's a trainer issue. If you see that he's distracted, but you continue to ask him to work, that's a problem. So you should stop, allow him to take in the distraction, decide he's ready to work, offer that engagement again, and you're essentially starting at square one again. He needs to offer engagement, offer the desire to work. Think of it as a privilege he gets to work. If he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to. He could be put away. And then lastly, you know, try to orchestrate your session so that things that are too hard for the dog to deal with are not present and to try to make sure that you block the dog from gaining access to those things. So like if I train Rhea in my front yard or in a park, she's dragging a long line just in case, right? So I'm never allowing her to run away from a session to investigate something. I trained her in a public area today. She was dragging a long line. She didn't need to necessarily have a long line on. She was engaged. She was doing what I wanted her to do. But there were a few moments where she wanted to run and say hi to a dog that was passing or um, a jogger actually happened upon us, things like that, that were momentarily distracting for her. And I was able to just step on the long line, not allow her to leave, allow her to choose to come back to the session and then get back into the session. And that is it for this week. Thank you all for your questions. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe wherever you heard this podcast. And don't forget to join Patreon at patreon.com slash cogdogradio. And if you're interested in more content like the stuff you heard here, I hope you'll check out my online courses, my membership, and all of my offerings at my website, sarahstremming.com. See you there.